Welcome to Lucretius Today. This is a podcast dedicated to the poet Lucretius who wrote On the Nature of Things, the only complete presentation of Epicurean philosophy left to us from the ancient world. Each week we'll walk you through the Epicurean text and we'll discuss how Epicurean philosophy can apply to you today. If you find the Epicurean worldview attractive, we invite you to join us in the study of Epicurus at epicureanfriends.com where you'll find a discussion thread for each of our podcast episodes and many other topics. We're now in the middle of a series of podcasts intended to provide a general overview of Epicurean philosophy based on the organizational structure employed by Norman DeWitt in his book, Epicurus and His Philosophy. Now let's join the discussion. Welcome to episode 167 of Lucretius Today. This week we're continuing in chapter 9 on the new physics. This week we're going into motion and some aspects of motion that are involved with the atom. And once again, as we start the episode, it's a good idea to repeat that we are not attempting to become particle physicists. We're not just curious for the sake of curiosity as to how atoms work. The Epicurean viewpoint was that you're always looking for knowledge, not for the sake of knowledge itself, but for the pleasure or avoidance of pain that comes from understanding the way things are. And it's with that attitude that we continue into some of the details of how atoms work which may appear to be on the surface kind of dry to some people, but once again, in a world in which there's much conflict of opinion and conflict of perspective on whether the universe operates supernaturally, whether it's even possible for us to affect our future because of determinism, whether there's a possibility of life after death, the answers to those questions derive from your viewpoint about the nature of things and how things are constructed whether they're constructed naturally or whether there is a supernatural component behind it. And one aspect I should mention at the very beginning, I think part of what is important when Epicurus goes into the details of the nature of the atoms and how they move around is you're continuing to look at this question of motion is something that we observe that atoms do, but where does it come from? There's a lot of discussion in Epicurus about weight and falling of atoms and so forth. But again, there's this question of what set the atoms in motion, or is it even appropriate to ask the question of, quote, in the first place, unquote, what set the atoms in motion? Because it's a perspective of Epicurus that there is no, quote, in the first place, that the atoms and motion through the void are eternal, and they themselves do not have their own cause behind them. Any comment on that, Joshua or Martin? What are the philosophical implications of whether motion itself has a cause? The implications as to whether motion has a cause or not, I think, I mean, it just radiates throughout the whole system. It's like Epicurus has claimed that atoms are constantly in motion. Lucretius says elsewhere that if the seeds of things could be destroyed, then pretty soon we'd have nothing at all. You know, everything would be destroyed and there'd be nothing left. It's kind of like that with motion. If atoms didn't have a constant rate of motion, then pretty soon they would all just come to a stop and nothing would ever happen again. So what drives motion and whether it has a cause, whether it constantly needs a cause to keep moving is an interesting question. My understanding is that Aristotle had this idea based on what he observed on Earth, because of course on Earth we have frictional forces. If you throw a ball, it'll go at a certain rate of speed. But then they'll slow down and then it'll hit the ground and then it'll roll for a bit, but it'll come to a stop eventually. And there seems to have been this idea in the ancient world 
And of course, Aristotle thought that nature abhorred a vacuum. There seems to have been this idea among some people in the ancient world that everything was like that. Everything would just go for a bit and then stop unless there was a constantly sustained force to drive it on. And Epicurus, I think, is saying that we don't need a constant force. You don't need the intervention of some god to sustain the clockwork of the universe. You just need constant motion. Seems to get around this problem. In terms of constancy, I have been inconstant here in the way I opened the podcast by discussing the problem of cause, which is the last thing in this chapter instead of the first thing. But the reason I did that is because, again, we always want to relate what we're doing back to the practical ramifications of it. And when you talk about Aristotle, he came back with this prime mover as his explanation of a first cause. And this prime mover contention ends up being very close to what you would identify as a divine being, as a supernatural force. One of the key issues seems to be, is there a requirement that there had to be something supernatural at a beginning to set everything in motion or not? If you don't deal with that issue, if you think that it's necessary that whatever we see today was initiated by some higher force, then you're going to constantly be impelled back to this supernatural viewpoint. And that's one of the reasons why Epicurus was so concerned about, again, there's the story that he asked his teachers when he was very young about the nature of chaos. They were just alleging that chaos existed before the things that we see today. And Epicurus challenged that approach as not making any sense. And so ultimately, much of what we're going back to here is this question of, was there a first moment of all things in which a divine being all of a sudden decided to create everything and we're here today because of that? Or in Epicurus's perspective, have the atoms moving through the void always existed such that what we see today is an absolutely natural result of the changes over time? and not having a requirement of a supernatural being to initiate it in the first place. Like you said, Joshua, if atoms are going to stop at some point unless they are continuously impelled or directed by a supernatural force, if that's the case, then you've got a problem stating that the universe is natural. That just invites a supernatural force and compels a supernatural force that's going to control everything about not only the universe, but your life since you're part of the universe. Right. And uh, Virgil uh, picked up on some of the implications of the physics here when he said, in reference to Epicurus and particularly Lucretius, happy is he who is able to know the causes of things and who trampled beneath his feet all fears, inexorable fate, and the din of the devouring underworld. So these issues relating to cause, while well, you rightly said at the beginning, these conversations can put people off as being kind of boring or irrelevant. The implications that extend from them, as I said, radiate from them, affect your understanding of how everything around you works. And that seems to me to be a question of principal importance. So Epicurus thought two things. He thought that nothing could be created from nothing, meaning that everything that exists has always existed. And he thought that the atoms were in constant motion. The implication of that, the inference that you derive from those two claims together, is that the atoms have always existed in constant motion. There was no need for a first cause or a prime mover to get things started. Now, we're going to talk today about this concept of the swerve that comes a little bit later, which is not necessary for this kind of philosophical idea of a mechanistic or physicalist world. And Democritus seemed to hold that view that nothing could be created and that 
the atoms were in constant motion. And that works, but for Epicurus, he needs to take it one step further, and he relates it back to ethics. But we'll get to that in a bit. Yes. There's a section before that into it, though, entitled Linear and Vibratory Motion. So let's see what's there before we move on to the swerve. Right. So this involves what to me is the seminal question in Epicurean cosmology. And it has to do with what we constantly hear about, quote, the original motion of atoms. And this has been, I guess, a thorn in my side for a long time because it strikes me that there ought to be no original motion of atoms because there's no original. That doesn't exist in Epicurean cosmology. There is no origin point that everything comes from. Everything has just always existed. You know, when you say everything has always existed, we're not saying that Joshua has always existed. We're saying that the atoms that make up Joshua have always existed. The bodies that we see around us certainly have not always existed and will not always exist, but the atoms that make them up have is the Epicurean point. Is that correct? Yes. The atoms and their attributes, like their weight, their shape, and their motion. Is it weight, shape, and size? It is size. What DeWitt does in this book is he connects weight to motion. They're inextricable, and therefore Mm -hmm. motion, if you have weight, you have motion. And so the motion, like the weight, has always been there. It doesn't start out. In other words, the Epicurean universe and the atoms that make it up don't start out like balls on a billiard table, just waiting for that first something to strike something else and start it all in motion. And as far as the motion always being there, one of the general points that you've made already is that the speed of atoms is constant. Yeah, but yeah. Of course, the motion of atoms is uniform. You can't ever have things stop. Mm-hmm. If things completely stop, you've reached complete, what's the word, entropy, I guess. And then nothing else ever happens again. That seems to be the issue. So atoms, even when they're bound up in compounds, and they can't move at a constant speed in one direction because they would have to leave the compound body in order to do that. Instead, they vibrate at that same speed within the compound. It's always struck me that one of the things, at least that DeWitt is seeking to bring out about all this, is that there are no divine atoms or no thinking atoms. There's not a certain type of atom that motivates the other atoms. That while we can say that the spirit of man is made up of the lightest and smallest atoms, the, maybe the finest, the, the finest, finest atoms. <laughs> yeah, you could take this conversation in all different kinds of directions. But since we are talking about something like a mechanistic understanding of nature or a materialist or physicalist understanding of nature, the usual analogy for this kind of thing is the watch. Like it, it operates like a watch, right? You've got the mainspring. And that drives the gears. And then this gear drives this gear, which drives this gear, which drives this gear. And it's all planned, I guess, would be a way to think of it. And so the argument that's often made is you can't have a watch without a watchmaker. And it's it's that exact question of the prime mover. And it's a distinction between what Epicurus thought about nature and what he thought about the nature of the gods and a popular mode of thinking, particularly around the 18th century, which was deism. And some people will, in kind of loose speech or loose language, will say, well, Epicurus was a deist because the gods are removed from human affairs. But one of the central components of deism, really the only reason the god exists in deism, is this idea that something has to be there in the beginning to wind up the watch. 
And after that, it'll run. But something has to start it. And that something that starts the watch then just goes away and does something else while we live in the universe, the clockwork universe that the being created. So really, there is no connection between Epicurus and his view of nature and of the gods and between deism and its view of nature and of the God that created nature. Right. Joshua, when I was reading long before I got more interested in Epicurus, I was reading a lot of the deist material. And it was interesting to me, of course, Thomas Paine and his Age of Reason was a tremendously influential book on my thinking. And I noticed that there is an article that Thomas Paine wrote, a discourse at the Society of Theophilanthropists in Paris. And looking back on these things, it's frustrating to me that Thomas Paine did not go down the Epicurean route and instead was stuck, in my view, on deism. But that article that I'm referring to talked a lot about the question of motion. One of the parts of it says, quote, the universe is composed of matter and as a system is sustained by motion. Motion is not a property of matter. And without this motion, the solar system would not exist. And he goes on to argue that motion itself is a argument that you can use to infer the existence of a supreme being prime mover. So the issue of whether motion is a property of matter itself. It's very good to bring Thomas Paine into the equation here. It's kind of what I said a little bit ago. This seems to be DeWitt's view of what Epicurus thought, and that is that weight is a property of the atoms and motion is inextricably linked to weight. Now, that brings in all kinds, a whole raft of other questions, and we're going to get to issues here about whether the universe has an up or a down or not, because the question of how weight contributes to motion is one that I don't really know whether the ancient thinkers were really equipped to grapple with. But the question is a fascinating one, and I'm glad you brought in Thomas Paine. Yeah, and that's where I'll end that discussion by just saying that Thomas Paine is someone who's, I think, very close to Epicurus in many aspects of of his overall viewpoint, certainly in his rejection of religion and supernatural intervention of gods and so forth. And I just think it's interesting that Thomas Paine and those deists not only were, no doubt, they were also interested in protecting themselves from charges of heresy and being burned at the stake or whatever, But this issue of motion is something that they ran into an issue with and apparently concluded somewhat maybe in an Aristotelian sense that that this motion is an indication of a first cause and therefore something supernatural. But Epicurus is saying that motion is always something that has existed eternally with the atom. The the atoms have always been in motion. There, There was never a time when atoms were motionless. I just want to reference this book because it's on that question of whether the universe is a watch made by a watchmaker. Richard Dawkins wrote a book specifically about evolution, but about other things as well, called The Blind Watchmaker. And it's this idea that natural selection, for example, coupled with genetic mutation, is enough to explain speciation with a framework built around it. And that gravity, absent a god, is enough to explain motion, things like that. So there are all these ways that we have today that Epicurus probably didn't fully grasp or didn't live in a time that gave him access to these ideas, but that explain this stuff so much better than the idea that something started it all and then walked away. So that book, Blind Watchmaker, is good on this point. Yes, this whole clockmaker argument is something that people who are interested in these issues are really going to want to wrestle with. It's very close to some of the ultimate questions that we're dealing with. 
Now, we turn to the next section of DeWitt, which is the swerve of the atom. There is an article that I highly recommend from David Sedley entitled Epicurus's Refutation of Determinism. And I'm not going to be able to summarize much of the thrust of that article, but I think that if you read it, you'll find a very, very interesting argument that Sedley makes. And of course, I consider David Sedley to be one of the real authorities on Epicurus living today. He takes the position that Epicurus probably did not develop his theory of the swerve as part of his physics, that he started out with a Democritean viewpoint of physics, but then, of course, confronts this question of where does our apparent free will come from? And from Sedley's point of view, the argument for the existence of a swerve is a deductive conclusion based on the observation that higher animals have a certain degree of free will. And if there were not a mechanism of some kind that would explain that, then you would not have free will. So you deduce the existence of the swerve from observation about the way bodies of a certain type, higher animals, operate. Because, of course, you can't see an atom swerve. You can't see an atom do anything. You can't see an atom. But from what we observe at the level that we can see things, we conclude that the swerve must exist. And another article that's very, very important, I think, on this would be an article by A.A. Long entitled Chance and Natural Law in Epicureanism. And it also goes into this question of the swerve and another very important aspect of it. It's an interesting question that if atoms are swerving, why is everything not totally unpredictable all the time? And long constructive argument that what Lucretius says about the swerve, which is our only record of it in, I think it's book two of the poem, is that the swerve is happening at no fixed time and no fixed place. But it's also an incredibly slight deviation with the implication that this deviation is hardly even observable. It's the most minimal possible. And what Long constructs from that observation is that while the swerve may be going on all the time in most atoms or all atoms, because of its minute nature, it doesn't, and I think this is Long's term, it doesn't break through into something that's observable to us at our level of existence, except in a certain number of cases, such as, again, the movement of intelligent animals that generally the universe does operate in a totally mechanistic way of billiard balls bouncing off each other in the deepest physics sense, but that this swerve exists at a very minute way that allows, in certain instances, a breakthrough of the ability of certain bodies not to be totally mechanistic. So those are two articles I would really recommend for anybody who's interested in pursuing the swerve. And of course, there's Stephen Greenblatt's book itself. What he says there at the end of that section is that he's going to talk about it more in a later chapter called The New Freedom. Mm. So all of his issues relating to determinism and, and that kind of thing are going to be brought up at a later point. What I wanted to talk about was sort of the broader point of what we're talking about today, which is motion, flux whether motion is possible, where it started and all that. And once again, Epicurus, as he so often does in the ancient world, seems to be caught between two extremes. There was a philosopher named Zeno of Alea, following, I guess he was a disciple of Parmenides, who thought that motion as we know it is impossible. And then you have people like Heraclitus who said that everything is in a state of flux and you cannot step into the same river twice. In other words, that things are changing and they're changing so fast 
it's impossible to grab hold of any one thing and really know much about it. And, and so both of those positions lead to conclusions and implications that are, I think, anathema to everything that Epicurus thought was true about the universe. And so I just say once again, he, he's caught between <laughs> a rock and a hard place and manages to chart his own course in a way that he thinks preserves what is important about humanity and ethics and what's true about the gods and all of that while at the same time being true to the physics and that's that's a constant challenge it seems like in the ancient world when you've got such a great spectrum of ideas on every point yeah and again it's just different levels of detail that certain people are going to want to get into and some people are not going to want to get into but if you don't at least have a high level understanding of where these issues go then it's easy to get tripped up by other people's arguments against you or attempts to place doubt in your mind for example also i remember the diogenes of winoander has a section about the flux and how epicureans believe that the flux does exist but that it's not so fast that we can't comprehend the things that are moving within it. So again, if it doesn't bother you, it doesn't bother you and you can safely live your life attempting to fine tune how much you eat and how you spend your time to live happily. But there's a constant battle that is extremely important going on behind things. And this gives you the key to explaining it if and when you come into contact with that kind of a controversy. So it seems to me we're now on to this issue of acceleration and retardation, which I would probably change to deceleration. One thing about what DeWitt is saying in this section, I think, goes back almost into the epistemology or canonics discussion. So what Epicurus has to say on this issue of acceleration and deceleration, and I'm sure this will come up again in more detail, but what he has to say on it at this point is this idea of whether motion is inherent in the atom itself as a consequence of its weight. And we've talked a little bit about that, but it's this idea that motion and weight are inextricable. Because weight is one of the permanent attributes, then motion goes right along with that. And so the question that comes up is this issue of what happens to projectiles on Earth. And one of the objections, and I gather this came from, does he say it came from Aristotle? One of the objections is that if you have an object and you throw it, let's say you throw a baseball. Well, we know that the speed of atomic motion is supposed to be uniform. And we know that that must be pretty darn quick, quicker than thought, I think is what he says. But if you throw a baseball and you throw it relatively slowly, doesn't that sort of imply that all of the atoms that are in the baseball are moving as slow as the baseball? It, it seems rather obvious. This is the objection that was brought to Epicurus and to later Epicureans. And so the response was this issue of the two different types of motion, linear motion and vibratory motion, that even when an atom is contained within a compound body, and that compound body is either moving slower than the uniform rate of speed of the atom, or is completely still, it's not moving at all. Even if that's the case, the atoms are still in constant motion. Yes, that makes sense. It's an obvious objection of somebody who, when you hear that atoms are in motion, you look at a mountain or a tree. That tree's not moving. That mountain's not moving. And you have to have an explanation for the fact that the atoms that compose the mountain or the tree are what we're talking about. Just because we can see the configuration at a particular moment does not mean that the atoms themselves, which create the configuration, are not in motion. I had a conversation at one point with someone who thought that the world was flat. 
And there's, I guess, a small but nevertheless somewhat significant number of people who still hold this to be true. And they don't think that gravity exists as a force in nature. They think it is, it's just made up, isn't it? That people are trying to derive this and there's no foundation for it. Now, that's not true, of course. But what they substitute in place of gravity to explain some of its effects, there are, I guess, two different things. And one of them works and one of them doesn't. So you can simulate gravity on Earth by positing that the Earth, which is flat, of course, is accelerating upwards at a constant rate of speed. That would seem to explain a lot of what appears to be gravity, right? Because when you drop something, it falls to the floor. But if it's, in fact, the Earth that's accelerating upwards toward the ball, that would make a difference. The other thing that they used to explain this is buoyancy. And this is a totally muddled thinking, in my view. The idea that there's no need for gravity because heavy objects fall downward and lighter objects rise. And the cause of this is buoyancy. Well, buoyancy, of course, is reliant on gravity. You, you can't have buoyancy without gravity because you can't have heavier objects falling without gravity, it seems to me. But what it caused me to do in that moment, I asked this person, well, why do heavier objects in this problem of buoyancy, why is it that heavier objects fall down? And they made some snide reply. And I said, no, seriously, what is it about down? What is so special about that direction in particular that that's the direction heavier objects go to in absence of gravity? What is it that's so special about up that that's where lighter objects rise to? And they, of course, had no answer. There is no answer because it doesn't make sense to talk about it in these terms. And that's really the whole point of this subsection of the chapter is trying to get a hold of ideas like up and down in an infinite universe. And so what DeWitt says here is that Epicurus, in much of what he's doing, is trying to immunize the minds of his disciples against certain views propounded by Plato and Aristotle in criticism of Democritus. So he's defending certain aspects of the Democritian universe. So this would trace us back to Carl Sagan's discussion in that episode of Cosmos we've been talking about, how Democritus and perhaps Lysippus, but Democritus primarily, had been the exponents of atomism and were moving things forward, and that Plato and Aristotle represented a regression, actually a loss of the understanding that the Democritian atomic theory had provided, that both Plato and Aristotle were after Democritus and had spent a lot of time criticizing his atomic theory. So what I'm reading here is that apparently Diogenes Laertius suggested that Plato wished to burn all the writings of Democritus that he could collect. That doesn't come from Plato himself. That's Diogenes Laertius. And we talked with David Glidden about some of the issues with relying too much on Diogenes Laertius. But in the ancient world, there was thought to be some antipathy there. Okay, and so if that comes from Diogenes Laertius, even though we have to be careful, it seems pretty clear that both Plato and Aristotle had been criticizing Democritus, and what Epicurus was then faced with the need to do would be to rehabilitate the Democritian perspective. Or certain aspects of it, you know. Except for the hard determinism, perhaps. So this stuff is so weird to talk about. And what seems to be at the center of this conversation is this. If you assume that the universe is infinite, as Epicurus does, if you assume that the universe has no center, as Epicurus does, some of these other philosophers thought that the Earth was the center of the universe. And so downward is anything that points toward the center of the universe, and upward is anything that points away from it. And that makes it consistent within their claim. Their claim doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's consistent within their claim. 
So Epicurus is now in the position of having to explain up and down and the motion of the atoms in relation to up and down in a universe that is infinite, that has no center, that has no beginning and has no end. And it's a really odd and difficult thing to talk about. And Lucretius has a passage. I mentioned the idea that the earth is flat. Some people read Lucretius and come away with the conclusion that Lucretius thought the earth was flat. DeWitt seems to say that there is no opinion about the shape of the earth in Lucretius, but that there needs to be some place on the body for human beings to stand, seems to be the issue. And it's unclear from the text whether that means that all of them are standing on top of each world or how that all works. So. I think we've discussed that before, that there's the implication in Lucretius that if people lived on the other side of the world, they might fall off. Because, of course, Epicurus and Lucretius were committed to the idea that there was no center to the universe, and that especially that the center of the universe was not the center of the Earth. And so from that perspective, presumably you could, if everything is falling downward, but the Earth is not at the center, because there is no center, then you could conceivably have a problem with falling off if you're on the other side which is one of those issues we talk about in terms of, okay, that's not what we think today, and that we would conclude that to be laughably wrong. But which is the greater error to think that you could fall off the other side of the earth or to think that everything in the universe is focused on the core of the earth itself? And to me, which I always worry about these religious objections and so forth, if I thought that everything in the universe the universe was revolving around the earth, I would have a hard time believing that there's not something special in a religious sense even about the earth. That would to me lead to that the earth was created by someone with special intent as to humanity and to the earth. And of course, that's not what we believe to be the case through science today or through the Epicurean theory. But if you do believe that we're the center of everything, it is easy to draw damaging analogies psychologically from such an error. It would be nice if they had understood that each planet has gravity and you're not going to fall off the other side of the Earth if you're on the uh, other side. But it doesn't lead, in my mind anyway, to the type of religious and psychological problems that would occur if you believe that the Earth was itself the center of the universe. You said something a little bit ago, like it's laughable today to think that you could fall off of, <laughs> uh, fall off of the face of the earth. There's a sort of thought experiment in which it's not all that laughable. When you're, for example, if you're an astronaut and you're on a spaceship, it becomes really important to be tethered to that spaceship because if you're not tied down, you really will, at the slightest provocation, just float off into space. And the reason is that the spaceship well, it, you know, all mass has a gravitational force, I think, Martin, correct me if I'm wrong, but the spaceship doesn't have a strong enough gravitational pull to pull your body back to it. So the, the central, the seminal idea that separates modern physics from physics of the ancient world is the understanding that there is a force inherent in all matter and it draws other matter toward it. And that force is gravity. In the absence of gravity, it would be very possible to fall off the face of the earth. So that's the issue. And it's, it's in, I mean, we <laughs> want to use the word inconceivable too much. It reminds me mm-hmm. of uh, the, that famous scene from The Princess Bride. But it's inconceivable to think that the ancient world, they could have really come up with a well thought out and a well understood concept of gravity. Any comment, Martin? Yeah, without gravity, we wouldn't really fall off us, but we, we would slowly drift away. 
there was a recent film that I didn't see, but I remember it created quite a stir. It's supposed to be very good, but it was set in space. And there was this astronaut, I think she was a woman, and she started floating away from the ship. And so in a split second decision, she like cut her oxygen hose or something and used the propulsion of the oxygen flowing out of the hose to push herself back to the ship. I'm probably not remembering that correctly, but it's <laughs> so, so you're, you know, that's that's the whole idea is you're floating away. But once you float to a certain point, you might as well have fallen off because there's there's no going back absent some contravening force. If you have a knife, you can either throw the knife so that you accelerate it back by the preservation of the momentum, or you cut off a limb and throw the limb away. As a potential way of getting back to your spaceship, if you've got something in your hand, you can throw it in the opposite yes. direction? Yes. It's the same idea as uh, releasing the oxygen. Uh, it, it's the same thing. It seems like, I was about to say a moment ago, it seems like there's something primitively awful about the idea of floating away from all these science fiction movies it seems like many of them will use that same analogy of the astronaut getting detached from his spaceship and just floating off into nothingness and it seems like there's something oddly compelling about that analogy i just now caught myself perpetuating the same mistake so they probably don't have oxygen they have air in there. so the uh, it has to be air because if you take in 100 oxygen it's poison Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I said, I haven't actually seen this movie. I'm just reporting what I hear at second hand, which is usually a mistake. It seems to me that this idea of floating away on an endless plane of nothingness is probably a nightmare that's very old, considering how long we've been a seafaring species. But yes. I think we're like floating away from a ship. Well, there is this problem. A surface reading of the Epicurean text seems seems to suggest that the quote-unquote original motion of the atoms was straight downward owing to their weight in perpendicular lines and that the swerve was needed to get the billiard ball motion knocking off of each other. DeWitt seems to take a, a critical view of that understanding. It's almost as if this original motion of the atoms is more of a thought experiment than anything. There is no original motion of the atoms because there's no origin point in space or time. But he thinks that he seems to suggest that this was a useful conceit to help explain why the swerve was necessary. But Cassius, you've read the articles, which I have not, which is that David Sedley article and the A.A. Long article. And I know that you have some opinions on this point of how important the swerve really is. Yeah, in fact, I think Sedley's commentary is very similar to DeWitt's sort of challenge here in the section of Perpendicular Universe, because as DeWitt says here, he says, quote, so far as the atoms and their motions are concerned, the principle is indifferent. And that's the principle of falling straight down, because owing to the constant collisions and the subsequent rebounds, the atoms are thought of as moving in every conceivable direction throughout the void. And so that's something else I think that is reflected in Sedley, that how many swerves are really necessary for things to come into being. All you really had to have, according to Sedley, if I remember correctly, is just one single swerve at any moment. And then everything would have started bouncing around. So it seems like both DeWitt and Sedley are sort of challenging this idea that Epicurus needed the swerve in order to bring our universe into being, that that could have come into being without the necessity of an atom swerving, and certainly without the necessity of atoms constantly swerving through eternity. Uh, if they're not swerving constantly, 
it's not enough uh, to, to to really get collisions because they will not get to the other atoms at the same speed. So if one swerves, it still uh, doesn't get it uh, on another one. No. And Martin, haven't you also made the analogy in the past that over time and space, it dies down. The collision effects eventually fade away. And there's another problem. Cassius, you said that if the center of the universe was the center of the Earth, that would indicate something very, very special and very, very unique about the Earth. It seems to me if there was one swerve that started it all, that would seem to indicate something very, very special and very, very unique about that one swerve. That would be the fingerprints of God, as it were. Of course, I don't know that we've mentioned yet today the observation that the swerve does not appear in the letter to Herodotus. The swerve does not appear in any direct writing of Epicurus that we have record of. If we did not have Lucretius Book Two, we would not have a straightforward statement from an authoritative Epicurean text about even the existence of the swerve. So that's a factor in all of this analysis where we attempt to look into the text and figure out what was really going on. But the letter to Herodotus explains the formation of universes without any reference to the swerve. So there's all sorts of interesting questions that arise from the details of the text. Okay, problem of cause as the last section of chapter nine. He starts it off here with a reference to Aristotle, which, Cassius, you've already made. This this issue of the prime mover, the uncaused cause that causes everything else, or that causes the original chain reaction that causes everything else. And so DeWitt has a point here. If, if you're living and writing in a context where people are obsessively looking for the causes uh, that explain all things, and I, I read that quote from Virgil, happy is he who knows the causes of things. It would seem odd not to give some explanation of that. He mentions here that it was a topic unsuitable for beginners. This is something that DeWitt always goes into. And I, I never really know what the foundation of all this stuff is. But it seems to me it's sort of an analogy with what you have today with different apologetic Christian writers who will attempt to reconcile reason and religion and come up with so-called reasonable arguments for God. This is what Aristotle was doing ultimately, is if you deduce from your physics that there had to be a prime mover, an uncaused cause, then it's very easy and simple to designate that phenomena as God. And so in a philosophy that attempts to respond to that and to say that everything is natural and does not arise from some intelligent original source, then you have to come up with an alternate explanation. And that's what we're doing through atomism and the formation of universes totally naturally through the operation of the eternal atoms. And I think this paragraph is worth reading. He says, the first cause is manifestly weight, which causes the downward motion of the atoms. It is equally manifest that the second cause is the blows arising from the clash of atoms, which are the cause of all opposite and oblique motions. The third cause is the swerve of the atoms from the perpendicular and their downward motion. This serves two ends. First, it makes possible the collision of atoms, which otherwise would fall in parallel lines and never meet to form compound bodies. Second, it emancipates man from an infinite chain of physical causation, the pet abomination of Epicurus, and makes possible the freedom of the will. Particularly that last sentence I thought was, was very yes, well done. Yes, yes, yes. Because there is a connection. We, you know, some people find the physics rather dull, but it's constantly 
it's constantly interacting and intersecting with the ethics, which is what people want to talk about so much, it seems to me. There's a lot of bleed through in every area here. And so it's, it's always worth going back and talking about these things. To be prepared, for some reason, this analogy comes to my mind. Death is not the kind of thing that we want to constantly be thinking about because we want to enjoy our life and not just be overwhelmed by the grief that comes from death. But we know that death is going to intrude into our lives. And if we don't spend some time preparing for it and thinking about what it means and understanding how it fits into the scheme of things, then we can be just totally knocked off of our rocker, so to speak, and have our lives totally collapsed by an unexpected and unprepared for event that is something that we know is going to happen. And again, these questions of the existence of the universe and how everything comes together, whether it's supernatural, whether we have the ability to control our future or not, whenever the sort of bad things in life come to affect us, all of these issues can flash to our minds and further debilitate us in our efforts to stand up against that. And the best way and probably the only way to deal with those issues is to some extent be prepared for it and know where to go to look for answers to those questions that seem to be so depressing and demoralizing if you don't have an understanding of what they really mean. I remember Emily Austin talks a lot about this in her book and her recent articles. I get drawn to this particular passage where she talks about how when bad things happen, an Epicurean doesn't think that these things have a good reason behind them. In other words, there's that quote from the Bible about all things happen together for good for those who love the Lord. Well, that is not the way things are. All things don't happen for good. Bad things that happen aren't the expression of the will of God. They are simply bad, and we wish to avoid them if we possibly can and take steps to avoid them if we possibly can. But we don't have this mental construct by which we just reconcile a bad event as something that is ultimately meant for good, because it's not meant for good. It is simply a bad thing, which causes us to want to avoid it, if at all possible, and causes us to take steps to protect ourselves from it to the extent that we can. And to those things that we can't protect ourselves from, such as ultimately death, we have to have an understanding a mental understanding, an intellectual understanding of how it fits in and how we can continue living our lives pleasantly. And as we were discussing this recently, too, it's a kind of a false phrasing to say as nature intended, because nature doesn't intend anything towards us. But we have evolved or created by nature in such a way that we operate successfully when we have an intellectual understanding of those things that otherwise are mysterious to us. Epicurus says it in several different ways, and Lucretia says it as well, that knowledge in itself can actually be harmful to you if you don't pursue that knowledge to a conclusion that leads you to an understanding of the way things are truly working. If you're an astronomer and you just immerse yourself in all these incredibly awesome pictures of the universe, but you then don't move forward to the understanding that these things are natural and not a manifestation of some supernatural being, then you can back yourself into the corner of being more superstitious than any tribal witch doctor. You have to go to the next step of having a philosophy, as Lucretius calls it, what is it, a scheme of systematic contemplation, depending on how you translate. He says that over and over. Otherwise, you're like children in the dark who are imagining bad things to be happening. And this philosophy, even though certain aspects of it can appear to be bitter, 
are ultimately helpful to you because they give you this power to get past many of the tribulations of life. They're not going to get you past death. You're going to die. But even that, it will allow you to face with, dare I say, with a tranquil spirit. What he gets into here, I find so interesting. Henry David Thoreau in his journal records that he read about the first hundred lines of Lucretius, but didn't read any further, which is a shame. The thing that he pulls out as being the best part of that, in his opinion, was what he called the description of Prometheus climbing the ramparts of the world and stealing fire from the gods. Now, of course, Prometheus is nowhere mentioned in Lucretius. Lucretius is, is in fact, talking about Epicurus. But in this paragraph, very near the end of the chapter, I think we do get a glimpse of Epicurus stealing fire from the gods here, because what DeWitt says is that as for Plato's idea that the cause of motion in the universe was the divine mind and that the human being was endowed with a share of this mind, this is inconceivable to Epicurus. In his thinking, the human intelligence, including volition, was an accident of organic life. For him, it was quite thinkable that a purposive being should be the product of a non-purposive nature, the sole creatrix. That's what Lucretius calls nature or Venus, creatress or creatrix. So it's that idea. He goes further than Darwin in his first book, because Darwin wrote uh, in, I think, published in 1859, I think, The Origin of Species, in which he describes speciation, but he holds back he holds back the most important claim that his readers really ought to have read, but it would have completely shocked and appalled them, as the book already did shock and appall them. The idea that it wasn't just the animals that, that evolved from lower life forms, that it's the story of every single one of us. And it didn't come until one of his later books, The Descent of Man, later in life, after the main furor over the origin of species had already come out. Then he took to task this question of where does mankind come from? And for Epicurus and for Lucretius, the answer is here that nature, even though nature is not intelligent and has no purpose, Lucretius says that the eyes don't develop to let you see. That's not the way it happens. It's not like there's no drive or purpose or design in any of this. But from a nature that is non-intelligent and non-purposive, an intelligent and purposive being like mankind or the other animals can arise. So that seems to be, he puts it here at the end of his chapter on physics, that seems to be the grand bold claim of Epicurean and Lucretian materialism, the Prometheus moment in which he steals fire from the gods. Yes. You know, Joshua, I'm looking at this section that you're reading from as well, and I've already added into our show thread for today a link to that Thomas Paine article about using motion to prove in Thomas Paine, the idea of a clockmaker. But I see it that on page 170, DeWitt's making a similar point. Thus to Epicurus, to him, motion was inherent in matter, and no external cause of motion existed. While to Plato, matter was inert, and the cause of motion was external to it. I think essentially that's what Thomas Paine is doing in that article I cited. Is He's looking at matter and separating it from motion and saying that there's an external, basically supernatural cause. This is the level at which these issues are joined, is if you don't have a natural explanation for both matter and motion, then again, you've got the camel's nose under the tent of saying that somehow this motion has been created by an external force that is essentially God. And that's one of the places I want to end up in this episode for today. 
This is why there is such an important distinction between Epicurus versus Stoicism or versus other philosophies or psychologies that sort of start and end with the proposition that, well, we all want to be happy. Let's just talk about being happy. The Stoics were absolutely dependent on a viewpoint similar to Plato and Aristotle, that there is what is essentially a divine fire, supernatural origin to everything. And if you go down that road, you're going to want to follow that road and decide, well, if there's a supernatural origin, tell me what that supernatural force wants me to do. And that's how I'll live my life, whether it's religious piety or virtue or whatever you consider that supernatural force to be, you're going to want to study that and get behind that and use that as as the foundation for your ethics. And Epicurus saw that that is a total dead end and it's going to lead you to all sorts of damaging conclusions. You have to start at the very beginning to understand that the universe is not supernatural, that it is all natural, that it does not have any plan for your life, and that it's up to you to develop your own plan to understand, based on the feelings of pleasure and pain, how you should spend your time and how you should act to bring a better life for yourself and your friends. And that's going to lead us next week when we start into chapter 10. As DeWitt has said in this chapter, it's one of Epicurus's major irritations that people have the idea that we are at the mercy of fate or at the mercy of supernatural gods. And so DeWitt devotes an entire chapter, chapter 10, to the topic of, quote, the new freedom in which we're going to discuss those things which we do have control over, those things we don't have control over, and how we evaluate what we can do with the discretion that we do have, how we should work to implement the choices and avoidances which will lead us to a better life. Thanks to our listeners for being with us today. Always feel free to come by the forum, look up this episode and our other threads to discuss whatever might be on your mind in regard to Epicurus. We'll be back next week to start a new chapter, chapter 10, The New Freedom. Thanks, and we'll see you then. Bye.